That's where we're looking this morning in Matthew chapter 6, the passage that was read for us this morning. If uh, you want to use a pew Bible, you can find it on page 811, Matthew chapter 6. The portion of scripture for us today is what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, or some have said it's actually more of a disciple's prayer because it's the disciples uh, that are to pray this or follow this model. It's likely that many, if not most of us, have this section of scripture memorized. You're probably familiar with this passage of scripture. In fact, this is one of those passages of scripture that is so familiar that even some that aren't actively practicing Christianity would hear these words and would identify them or understand uh, the Lord's Prayer. Before we look into this passage of scripture, I want just to recover a little bit of the context of what's going on here so we understand why Jesus is giving this instruction. Uh, that's why our scripture reading this morning went back into, into verse 5 so we could kind of hear the teaching flow that Jesus had. Leading up to this section, Jesus has been contrasting the differences between spiritual hypocrites and true citizens of the kingdom of God. According to Jesus, spiritual hypocrites are people who do their religion for the purpose of being praised by others. You can see that in verse 1, and then it's repeated again in verse 5 of chapter 6, and again in verse 16. Or the, the problem is that these spiritual hypocrites were doing their religious expression for the purpose of being praised by others. In addition, spiritual hypocrites pray with a strategy of repeating empty phrases. In verse 7, you'll see that uh, Jesus is decrying that type of strategy of praying, that they, they heap up these empty phrases. But citizens of God's kingdom are different. True kingdom citizens have a different motive behind their prayer. They don't seek the praise of others. They seek God himself through prayer, and they're promised a reward from God, which really is an astonishment of how generous God is towards his children. In verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 18, this phrase is repeated where God is the one who is going to give the reward for those that truly come and worship him. True kingdom citizens not only have a different motive, but they also pray differently. And that's where we find ourselves in this text this morning where Jesus gives this model prayer. How are kingdom citizens to pray? Verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's giving us a model prayer. In other words, this prayer is, is, was not meant to be used strictly as a memorized prayer to be recited as part of a rigid religious liturgy. It's certainly not wrong to memorize and recite it, of course, but it's primarily intended to be a model or an outline that shows the manner of true prayer. And so this morning, we're going to divide this prayer into two sections. We're going to look at the first section where we learn that God is preeminent in prayer. That's verses 9 and 10. And then the second section is going to show us that we can trust God with all our needs through prayer. That's going to be verses 11 through 15. Now, if you're not a Christian, I hope you're going to listen carefully today. I believe that this passage of Scripture is going to, going to reveal some of what makes it so amazing to be a child of God. And it's my hope that as a result of looking at this passage that you're going to want to learn more about what it means to be a Christian. And for the Christians here this morning, uh, this passage is going to offer us some encouragement. I think it will probably call us to some repentance. And I hope that it's going to encourage all of us, if I can say entice us, to enjoy God together through prayer. So let's look at this first section together, beginning in verse, verse 9. God is preeminent in prayer. The way Jesus begins teaching teaches us something about the nature of prayer. 
I mean, the preeminence of God in this model prayer is obvious right from the beginning. I mean, look at the words. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The nature of true prayer is that it should be primarily God-focused. When we think of prayer, it's likely we are thinking of asking God for things. And that's not wrong, all right? That's certainly part of prayer. But we can easily slide into this self-serving, kind of gimme, gimme, gimme mentality when we come to God in prayer. And certainly, making petitions is part of prayer, but in this model prayer, Jesus begins with establishing the, the centrality of God in prayer, the preeminence of God in prayer. Do we? Jesus begins by addressing God as our Father. Now, this is one of those uh, truths that we enjoy as New Testament Christians. In fact, we, we enjoy it, which is good, but we enjoy it so much that we can become accustomed to it. But the idea of God being approached with this term of close family endearment, the word father there, it would have been something new and astonishing in its day. In fact, historically, ancient Israel, they would address God in terms of his power or his might or his holiness or his greatness, but they would not address God as their father. They would, just, they would address Abraham as being their father, but not God. And yet here Jesus comes with this term of father, and what Jesus is doing is he is emphasizing this close family relationship that's shared between God and all those that are brought near to God through Jesus Christ. And so all that we know of what should be wholesome and wonderful about Christian fatherhood is contained here and applied to God. Good fathers are, are, are those that provide and protect, and they listen, and they give counsel, and they give guidance. Fathers serve, and they tirelessly work for the joy of the family. And in this prayer, Jesus reveals that Christians have the unique privilege of praying to God as their spiritual father. But Jesus teaches us that God is more than just our Father. He is our Father in heaven. You see in verse 9, our Father in heaven. And so the words in heaven establish God's transcendence. It's marvelous what Jesus is doing. He is drawing us near to God as our Father, and yet he's establishing the centrality of God as someone who is transcendent. God is near, yes, but he's also the God who reigns in heaven. God in heaven is establishing that he is omnipotent. Right? I mean, these are big doctrinal words. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He is present everywhere. These are things that are only true of God. And so as we address God as our Father, it doesn't remove the fact of all of his godness and his fatherliness. No, both are true. God's throne is in heaven where he rules and reigns in great splendor and majesty and glory. So I wonder how these two equally true truths affect us today. I mean, maybe as a Christian, maybe you've forgotten that you have the privilege as a Christian to Pray to a God who is your Father. Maybe that truth just needs to warm your heart again. Or maybe you've enjoyed the reality of God as your Father to the diminishment of His heavenly transcendence. You kind of have forgotten that He is powerful and He reigns in glory and majesty and it is He to whom you pray. But the centrality of God in prayer is seen again in that first request, look at the end of verse 9. We've established that we talk to our Father. He's in heaven. And then what is the first request that Jesus utters in this model prayer? Hallowed be your name. Now, the word hallowed is probably not a word we've used in the last week or two or three or four. <laughs> hallowed. What are we talking about here? Well, for us in our modern context, a name often functions simply as an identifier. You all call me Sean and not Frank. If you try to get my attention by calling me Frank, I'm probably not going to 
um, respond to that because I have been called Sean my whole life, and so I keep answering to that name. But in the, in the scriptural context, names would have been uh, including much more. They would have stood for more than just a, an identifier. In the context when Jesus taught this, a name would have, would have really been synonymous with the entire person. And so think of all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. As you start paging through the Old Testament and reading, as God is revealing himself through those pages, God uses his name to reveal more and more truth about who he is. I'm just going to read just a couple of these to describe this so we can kind of understand what, what's going on here when, when Jesus is, uh, is giving us this instruction. In Genesis 1, God's name is described as Elohim, which describes him as the creator of the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 14, God is El Elyon, which describes him as the Most High God. In Genesis 22, he's described as Jehovah Jireh, who is the God who provides. And then in Exodus 3, he's described as Jehovah, when he reveals himself to Moses as the Great I Am. In each of those instances, and there's many more that could be drawn from the scriptures, the name of God is not just identifying him, it's describing him. It's giving us an understanding of who he actually is. And so to ask for God's name to be hallowed, to be, to be holied, it means to desire that people will have a proper attitude of reverence and worship and awe for who he truly is. So citizens of God's kingdom want more and more people to enjoy true worship of God because that's what true worship is. It's this, it's this awe and adoration and highly esteeming the God of all. So the God-centered focus of this prayer continues in verse 10 when he says, Your kingdom come and your will be done. When people are properly hallowing God, they're going to desire God's rule and reign to be magnified in every area of their life. We can't separate the holiness of God from the rule and reign of God. They have to go together. And so your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is broken through into the world through Jesus, right? Jesus is inaugurating a kingdom, bringing it with him, and citizens of God's kingdom want that kingdom to come in its fullness. Your will be done means for more and more people to know and to grow in worship of God through willing acts of faith-filled obedience. So think about it. Right now, in the heavenly realm, God is not persuading angels to worship and adore him and obey him. I mean, right now, the desires of God, right, in the heavenly realm are fully and joyfully obeyed by all who are in his presence. And this, this model prayer is pointing our attention to this, that Christian prayer longs for this heavenly reality to become more and more true in this earthly realm. The words, your will be done, are not just empty words for Jesus to say. In, in time, as you continue to read through Matthew's record of this theological biography of Jesus, as you continue to read through this, Jesus is going to say those words as he prays in a garden before he is arrested and then sent to be crucified to pay the penalty for sins. And there in that garden, Jesus models these, this prayer in perfectness when he is wrestling and begging God his Father to remove the path of suffering ahead of him. And yet, what does Jesus say? Not my will, your will be done. I wonder what we think about these first three petitions. I mean, when we think of prayer, we often think of taking to God our requests, our needs, our desires. And that's true. But here, Jesus starts by giving us an emphasis on God's name, in God's kingdom, in God's will. That's how Jesus starts. I wonder, have we drifted away from the centrality and the preeminence of God in prayer, forgetting that we exist for God's glory, not the other way around? 
If we're to follow this model prayer, I wonder how much adjustment might be needed in our own prayers. And by the way, I'm just kind of assuming that we all understand that as Christians, we should be praying. This is, prayer is one of those topics where you don't ordinarily need to tell folks you ought to pray more. I think we all understand that we should. And we all kind of have that spiritual regret of knowing that we ought. And so, just, I'm not trying to add any more burden to that sense of guilt. What I want to do is just to encourage and entice us to the richness of relationship that God is offering to us through praying like this. God-centered prayers. What repentance of self-interest and pride might be required of us so we can first and most fully be preoccupied with displaying the glory of God. Once the centrality of of God has been established, Jesus then turns to the immediate and pressing needs of kingdom citizens. And by the way, this is how that model should work. And we ought to be thinking as Christians that we, we should be approaching God with the model in a similar way that Jesus is outlining here for us as well. And if you're not a Christian, you ought to understand that, that God is not just kind of a cold blanket on a, you know, a, not a cold blanket, a warm blanket on a cold night, you know, for this, those kind of, you know, difficult times of life kind of for the, the opiate for the masses. That's, that's not true Christianity. True Christianity is worship of a great and glorious God, and it's expressed even in our prayers. So once God has, Jesus has established the centrality and preeminence of God, he moves to our immediate needs. And this is that second section here of our, of our text, verses, beginning in verse 11. Trust God with all our needs through prayer. Trust God with all of our needs through prayer. In verse 11, the request for daily bread is profound in how basic it is. I mean, the term bread is a reference to the basic necessities of life. It's likely that you have bread not as the main course in your meal, unless you really like bakery. Um, sometimes they make bread, you know, like seven grain bread. It's like eating like a whole bread salad, if that can be a thing in one, one slice. But in the reference here that Jesus was talking about, he was talking about what was one of the major staples of their diet. It was an enormous part of their, of their daily diet. And so when Jesus instructs us to ask our Heavenly Father for our daily bread, the word, we can't miss that it's for the basic necessities, which should encourage us. That there isn't a need that is for our lives that is too small to ask God for. It's marvelous how much God loves us. That the God, creator of heaven and earth, would trouble himself to listen to our requests for bread, for physical nourishment. God has never hungered. He needs nothing. And he says you can ask him for all those simple needs. But the word daily shouldn't be missed either. This, I think, is probably where we need to have our hearts corrected because daily means it's a humble admission of our constant need for God to provide. This request harkens back to the days when Israel was traveling through the wilderness. If you're not a Christian and you're not familiar with that, in the book of Exodus, the Israelite people were traveling through the wilderness and they had no nourishment. They, there were no grocery stores you know, every, every five miles. And they were out there without food, and God miraculously provided food for them by giving to them what was called manna, these wafers that would, that would be on the ground. In the morning, they would go out in the dew, and all these wafers would be left behind, and they would gather those wafers up and then make them into bread. Every morning, Israel had to go out and gather those wafers of manna for their nourishment for that day, except on the day before the Sabbath. They were given two days' worth of bread to collect. But this rhythm of daily going out and collecting your, and getting bread, getting your nourishment... Sure, we want God to provide what we need, but daily? I mean, in our context, that seems stressful. I mean, we like to go to the grocery store. Maybe you go every day. I don't know. Once a week? 
You go to Sam's, you buy big boxes of stuff, put them in your, in your shelf, right? You got cereal for like the next month there. But here, Jesus is, is reminding us that we as, as creatures need God's nourishment, need God's provision daily, and so we should come to him daily with those requests. Do we understand that God delights in our daily dependence on him? In fact, instead of this being stressful, we need to ask him daily, if, if God is in charge, which he is, then if he's in charge of meeting our daily needs, then we really have no need to worry. That's the sentiment that Jesus is expressing here. So prayer is the breath of that dependence. So instead of chafing at this reality, I hope that this passage encourages us to embrace the joy of a Heavenly Father who delights in hearing our prayers and then answering them. And Jesus continues in verse 12. Here we learn that our needs go beyond the physical realm. Contrary to what the world may want us to believe, we are not just simple creatures that have appetites. Right? We need daily bread. We are more than just simple creatures. We are sinful creatures. And we need spiritual resources for forgiveness. This is why he says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I wonder if you know that this reality in your life, this whole idea of needing to be forgiven of sin, of a debt before God. If you're not a Christian, you should know that according to the scriptures, you are deeply indebted to God for your sin. God is holy. And the worst kind of financial debt cannot even be compared to the idea of spiritual debt that's caused by, by acts of treason against a holy God. Financial debts are somewhat temporary, right? I mean, bankruptcy is one way that some seek to mitigate debts or they try to consolidate debts and lessen the burden and get a plan. But how do you hope to do that with your spiritual debt of sin against the holy God? I mean, how are you going to consolidate that? I mean, how are you going to go to God and say, I'd like to just kind of file for sin bankruptcy before you? And this gets to the heart of true Christianity. Jesus is the one, right, that that, that sermon has recorded this, that wrote this, that that's, uh, taught this. Jesus came to pay the eternal punishment that we deserve for our acts of treason against a holy God. Jesus died in the place of every sinner who would turn from their love affair with sin and embrace Jesus as their only hope of forgiveness before a holy God. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness of your sin? What, what Kevin and Paulette and Trevor testified this morning about experiencing themselves, being under the burden of sin before a holy God and being forgiven. If you have never depended upon the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to be the satisfaction of the payment for your sin, we would love for this day to be the day where you would enjoy a relationship with God through finding forgiveness from sin through Jesus Christ. Now, if these gospel truths seem strange to you or seem unclear to you, would you please stick around after the service? We've got some time purposely in our schedule. We would love to have a chance to interact with you about this more. Or if, if that seems intimidating to you, okay, then would you come back again on another Sunday? Because at Highlands Baptist Church, we're kind of obnoxious about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're going to keep hearing it, and we want you to keep hearing it so you can understand it, so you can believe and embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. In verse 12, Jesus links receiving forgiveness from God with our extending forgiveness to others. Now sometimes, right, this is one of those things where you can recite aloud in a group of people, but then when you stop and actually think about it, you're like, what? I mean, forgive us our debts, yes, as we've all have also forgiven our debtors. Whoa. I mean, what's going on here? Does it mean that we are earning forgiveness from God by exercising forgiveness of others? And the short answer to that is no, because of what the Bible teaches elsewhere. Um, 
the Bible teaches that forgiveness of sin is a free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can read the book of Romans or the book of Galatians. Those are New Testament books in your Bible. Or here's one passage just drawn out from Romans, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So salvation is the free gift of God. That's firmly established in the scriptures. So what I believe Jesus is teaching here is that the evidence of having received forgiveness from God is a willingness and a disposition to forgive others. Or we could say it like this. Forgiving others doesn't cause God to forgive us. Forgiving others is an expression of having been forgiven by God. A citizen of God's kingdom is so astonished at the forgiveness God has given her and that astonishment over the undeserved gift of God's forgiveness warms her heart and empowers her to forgive others. So in other words, we're not willing to forgive others. If we're not willing to forgive others, it might mean that we have not truly grasped the depth and significance of God's forgiveness of us. You can dive into this a little more deeply if you'd like. You can mark this passage down, Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives an illustration of this truth, kind of being fleshed out more through an illustration. Go ahead and mark that down and read it over lunch and, and discuss it with some friends. But to, I want to also clarify with this idea of forgiveness because it can be kind of complex because it's full of emotion. Forgiveness does not mean we live as if nothing happened. Nor does forgiveness mean that criminal offenses cease to exist. Forgiveness does mean that we no longer personally hold on to the pain and injustice and I'm going to emphasize that idea of personal, that personal ownership. In, in what I mean by this is instead of having personal ownership of that pain so that we're going to pursue vengeance, we entrust that pain and injustice to a righteous and holy judge who is our Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus did. Peter records it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but what? Here it is. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Christians of all people are able to forgive. It doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to Christians. No, but it's that Christians have the doctrine, the theology, the truth of who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ, that we can entrust him with all of that pain, no longer hold ownership of that. Now, there are some obvious um, applications that could be drawn from this, right, for our hearts to consider. Do we realize that Jesus does not let us consider ourselves forgiven if we refuse to forgive others? Is there a hardness in our hearts that God must melt to just fresh visions of the gospel, meditations on the gospel? And what I mean by that is just considering and reflecting, just slowing down in life and reflecting on all that God has said he is for us through Jesus Christ. Must we ask God to forgive us because we are refusing to forgive others? Are there fractured or broken relationships in this church family that, that must be forgiven so that we can enjoy the full fellowship and joy of worshiping together a Heavenly Father? Now, if you're not a Christian, the idea of this kind of forgiveness is going to just elude you because if you're, not, you're not willing to trust God with your sin to be the payment of it, you're, you're going to keep holding it on to yourself and that leads to seeking vengeance and that kind of bitterness destroys you from the inside out. But Jesus came to deliver you from that kind of destruction. That's what sin does. It destroys. Which is why Paul could write in the Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Which, by the way, I believe that atheists have a much harder time living life in a sin-broken world than those that know and, and understand a true God because Christians are trusting God with all the pain, everything that's not right in the world. He will make it right. And if you have no hope in a God like that, then you are hopeless. And so we are then, as Christians, are uniquely enabled to forgive others because we have been forgiven. On verse 13, the final petition is an admission that we need God to guide us and protect us from evil and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we're not just simple creatures that need bread. We're sinful creatures that need forgiveness, and we are creatures that need God's guidance in verse 13. Asking God to lead us not into temptation. Uh, Don't logically flip that around and go, well, does that mean if I don't ask God, he's going to lead me into temptation? No, he's not going to do that. Because the scriptures clearly establish that fact. James, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So he's not enticing people towards evil. Instead, this, this petition that Jesus gives in this model prayer in verse 13, it means that we should ask God to guard us and keep us from the snare of temptation that does lead to sin. Understanding that we need a shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me. We need his continual guidance and leading. And that's linked to a request that we might be delivered from evil. Some of your translations might have the evil, right? For from the evil one. That's because that word evil is, doesn't have that definite article of the, but we understand that all temptation for sin, what lies behind that is an evil one who is enticing towards sin or his evil realm that is enticing us towards sin. It aligns with what Jesus taught his disciples later, right? In Matthew 26, when, he, when he's in the garden praying. I know I've referenced that twice now, but he's in the garden praying before he's led off to be arrested. And he says this to his disciples, watch and pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I wonder how much sin God would keep us from as a church family if we would follow the model in this prayer. Lord, deliver me from temptation keep me from it. Perhaps we, we find ourselves floundering in sin because we're not even asking God to deliver us. We, 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 too often we just kind of go through the flow in our days. And by the way, I, I had to work this through my own heart before I'm trying to work it through our hearts. We can kind of go through the flow of our days forgetful that we have a Heavenly Father who is eager to provide our daily bread and He is eager to, to guide us so that we do not fall prey to temptation. Imagine the joy of being in a church family where we are praying this for one another. And by the way, that, that's, where, that's where we're going to conclude. And just one final thought as we conclude. I want to draw our attention to, I think, an encouraging feature of this prayer. Do you notice the personal pronouns in this prayer? Now, it's kind of a trick question because Jesus refers to God, the Father, as your. But understanding that category aside, just look at these personal pronouns. Verse 9, our Father. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I know I'm speaking weirdly to emphasize those plural pronouns. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver, here it is, us from evil. Now, certainly you can use this model prayer in your personal private prayer. Yes, and we have the context for that because Earlier in this chapter, Jesus talks about when you pray, go in your closet and pray secretly, right? And then he gives a model for prayer. So certainly Jesus intends for this model to be used there. But I think that the reason that Jesus is using these personal pronouns that are plural is it shows that, that the 
fullest expression of obedience to this is the Christian community praying together for one another. Now just imagine the blessing of being part of a Christian community that is busy through their week praying this, not just for themselves, but for one another. It's marvelous. I mean, citizens of God's kingdom are bound together because we share a Heavenly Father, right? Our Father. And because we're bound together, because we share a Heavenly Father, we belong together. And then through faith in Jesus Christ, and because all that is true, we're part of the same spiritual family. We pray together. We pray with each other. We pray for each other. We are helping each other follow Jesus. So Matthew 6, this model prayer here, is, is an invitation for this church family to know the joy of this kind of prayer. Privately, yes, but also publicly, together, with one another. If you're ever wondering, you know, what are you supposed to do you know, with direct applications of this? You know, go home and read this and pray this today, this afternoon. How about this? When will you pray this week? Sometime. No, got to be specific. And how about this? Who can you pray with this week? And let's trust that God will take those seeds of faithful obedience and in his time reap a great harvest for righteousness.